Hi, welcome to JobsCast. Before I present this week's conversation with Jua Robinson, who is a devout Christian and community leader, I'd like to share some thoughts on cognitive dissonance and how it's linked, in my mind, to Christianity in America and something that I'm sure is increasingly on everyone's minds, the 2020 election. Uh, And before I do that, I'd like to also briefly announce that JobsCast is now active on Twitter. Please follow us at JobsCastPodcast. You can also follow me on Twitter, if you'd like, at PatBubble, that's P-A-T-B-U-B-U-L. And if you want to write me an email, I'd love that. You can send your thoughts to pat.bubul at gmail.com. So, cognitive dissonance. It's a concept developed by the social psychologist Leon Festinger, and it's regarded as one of the hallmark findings of the field of social psychology. Side note, for those curious, psychology is the science of mind and behavior, and social psychology is a subfield of psychology that studies how the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors of individuals are influenced by the actual, imagined, and implied presence of others. So, cognitive dissonance is a social psychological concept that occurs when a person holds contradictory beliefs, ideas, or values. It is typically experienced as psychological stress when individuals participate in actions that go against one of their professed beliefs, ideas, or values. According to this theory, when two actions or ideas are not psychologically consistent with each other, people do all that is in their power to change them until they become consistent. That is, they try to find a way to resolve the contradiction to reduce their discomfort. Most of that, by the way, was taken from Wikipedia. So take Christians, for example. I think they might look at Trump and resolve the cognitive dissonance created by his patently unchristlike behavior by immediately turning their attention to, say, abortion and rationalizing that he's in charge of the party that safeguards, quote, life from the moment of conception. Now, my view of cognitive dissonance and other biases is that we need to take an additional step beyond saying, hmm, interesting. It's our job to use the knowledge of our psychological vulnerability to mitigate its crazy-making effects. So if someone is a Christian and being a Christian is a genuinely important part of who they are and what they believe in and how they want to live, then there must be some direct accounting for Trump's unchristlike behavior before jumping to any other issue. Because whether or not one is following Jesus Christ's example is the paramount criterion for being a good Christian. And I would say whether or not following Jesus Christ is something that you care about or think about, I for one think the example Christ sets as far as living out core values of love and compassion is incredibly powerful and useful, even as I myself don't identify as Christian. But when we look at Trump, the hubris and lasciviousness and machismo that he models simply makes people worse, period. Everyone knows the phrase lead by example. It contains in it the insight that we often learn as much from observing as from explicit instruction. With Trump's words insulating our consciousness and the 24-7 media vortex we call reality, the more normal we allow Trumpian ways to become, the worse we get. There's a little kid part of our brain that says, but Johnny did it, so why can't I do it? Now millions of people, perhaps without realizing it, think, but Donnie did it, so why can't I do it? And we all know we can be so much better. We just know it. Now, 
I think individuals, groups, communities, counties, states, and America can all do better from the bottom up and from the top down, regardless of who the commander in chief is. No matter what, I think the job of being is to learn to grow and to change so that we can be better to ourselves and to others in order to make a difference in the world. But that process is massively affected by our leaders, and Trump is the ultimate leader of the country and arguably the most powerful person in the world right now, and he's not helping. If by chance these words are filtering in through ears that have been sympathetic to the message and model of Donald Trump, I'd like to say that I think there are sound reasons for disliking all of the other candidates back in 2016 and even this year, and I also think there are sound reasons for supporting someone who mocks the smugness and the contradictions of the political left, and I think he's an incredibly skilled entertainer, and in a world of pure entertainment, where actions don't have life or death consequences, he's a great choice. But the world has consequences that are clearly visceral. And when you look at Trump, when you really look at him, this is my challenge to a Trump sympathizer or voter. When you look at the man, my question is, is he the guy who models the best of what you can do, of what you can be? Is he the best example for how you want your kids to live? I'm not going to say if the answer is no, you must go vote for Joe Biden. I don't think Joe Biden is a paragon of excellence, but I would just ask you, for now, let this question marinate. Is Trump the right example? Are his words and actions Christ-like? Is he the person who deserves the largest platform there is? I uttered the phrase, make a difference, a moment ago, and I'd like to recycle it in the context of today's guest, Jua Robinson. It seems to me that Jua has organized his life so that he can make a difference. I see this as being quite different from making an impact. I think to make an impact is to participate within the strictures and structures of a given system, but to make a difference is to flout the rules. It's to say, for example, that we all experience trauma, and we can all help make a difference no matter what groups we belong to, and we're all deserving of love. Jua plays an active role in the Boston community as managing partner of the Boston Collaborative, an organization that connects workplace Christians to each other to address needs within the city of Boston. His family planted Heart Change Fellowship, a multi-ethnic congregation in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, and this church joined with the Charles River Church in 2018. Jua also serves on the Greater Things Greater Boston steering team and the Little Voice Little Early Prayer Summit and the Creo Collective, and he was city coordinator in the 2016 Boston DeVos Urban Leadership Initiative cohort. Jua's heart is seeing people live passionately for Jesus. He's had the privilege of speaking in 15 states, as well as in Cote d'Ivoire, and to numerous organizations. He and his wife, Regina, are parents to four energetic children, and it is now my great pleasure to present to you the incredible community builder, Jua Robinson. Jua, thanks so much for being a part of JobsCast. Uh, thank you. Such a pleasure to be here with you, Pat. So, Jua, it seems that you've been in the limelight these days. You appeared in an Atlantic article, and I know you've spoken on other podcasts. What's going on? Why are people seeking out your knowledge and expertise these days? Earlier, I want to say late spring, um, I was a part of a, a document that went out on behalf of uh, several graduates of, um, of, of Liberty University, uh, black graduates who really decried 
so much of the, the actions of uh, the former president, Jerry Falwell Jr. And uh, it's a, a document that we created, we put on change.org with 35 signatures. And from there, it kind of you know had a life of its own to where I want to say over 38, 39,000 people uh, signed the document. And because of it, you know, so many uh, of the news outlets reached out to say, hey, can we talk about it? You know, why did you sign? Can we talk to you a little bit more about your experience? And so, yes, yeah, so I was interviewed by The Atlantic. I also did an interview with Vice News. Uh, Slate magazine reached out uh, and even CNN reached out as well. Jua, for listeners who aren't aware can you give a brief summary of what the controversy was with Jerry Falwell Jr.? Oh my goodness, which one? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's just say for for a long time there were several alum who were just really outraged by his actions, about his posture, about his overall tone of not being Christ-like in his manner of kind of operating, you know, uh, in the university. Um, but then as well, just his own kind of personal stance and being so kind of connected to Trump and really having more of a, of a position that kind of leaned towards, you know, I'm going to I'm going to support Trump at all costs. And so in the spring, he sent a tweet out to the to the governor of Virginia. And in the tweet, it was a mask of the governor in blackface mm-hmm. of when he was in college. And he did it in jest to take a jab at the governor because yeah. of the whole kind of reopening you know, situation of the state. And it was just it was just very poor. I mean, it just it just showed a lack of insight and integrity. And we called him on it. And so that happened in early June. And and then kind of from that, it seems as if every week there was an issue, uh, something that happened kind of on a on a national stage of what he had done in his own personal life as well. Thank you for the summary. It sounds like layer upon layer of inappropriate behavior. You point to a core issue here, which I think is surprising to many Americans, and perhaps you can shed some light on it. Trump is a a Republican by title, and many pundits and commentators and writers have written so much about how he's not a typical Republican. He's not a typical politician in many obvious ways. But it's really interesting how, you know, the loyalties have sort of responded in predictable ways, but also unpredictable ways. And when I say loyalties, I mean, we think of the Republican Party in America as being the more religious party and the Democratic Party as being the more secular party, very broadly speaking. Yet, when we think about and the religious roots of America being Christian, more so than any other major religion, and Christianity, of course, being built on the the teachings and the actions of Christ. The disconnect to me that I'd love for you to sort of speak to is that there do seem to be many people who identify as being very religious and very faithful, who have supported Trump because he's the Republican and that's the party that typically embodies the faith tradition in America. But I feel like there's almost been this abandonment of common sense, right? When you just mm. when you just look at Trump, like literally, I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your yes. religion is. Just look at the way he speaks and what he says. And really, it is antithetical to how Christ uh, behaved and what he said and what he taught. And that's, to me, I'm just, it continues to be hard for me to understand how anyone who is 
serious about their religion could follow Trump. I, there are many other reasons why I do understand why people follow Trump, but this is one that it seems to me to get there. In this case, you must abandon your common sense. And that's a very surprising thing. So what's your reaction to that? I mean, I think you hit it on the head. I mean, I think for so many people, Trump has done a tremendous job of making people be afraid of certain people and certain groups and certain ideologies. And so, you know, if I'm able to arouse the fears of people and kind of get them on kind of my side of things or my, my way of thinking, then I'll have a greater ability to sway people's opinions in other areas as well. And so I think for a number of people who have taken on those same types of ideologies who are Christians, you know, even just staying in the Christian camp, you know, I've just said all along that for many of them, they don't have relationships with people who are intentional about really helping them understand kind of the bigger scope of America and mm -hmm. the bigger scope of people and thoughts. For example, what's been happening with police reform and kind of right. the, the calls for police reform, right? And so in, in most instances, it's when people are having this conversation who are on the police reform side, they're not saying, let's just get rid of police and just not have them. But it's a conversation that says, how can we reallocate some of those resources in communities that are heavily policed so that there are greater resources to help people so that, uh, especially at a young age, that they're able to have greater resources so that they wouldn't turn to a life of crime, right? That's right. So you, you have this conversation and it's unfortunate because for so many people who kind of have, you know, the same ideologies, it's support of Trump at all costs. And mm -hmm. so we're not gonna, you know, look at how he tries to support, you know, white supremacy, you know, we're, we're gonna turn a blind eye to what he says about, you know, women or, you know, folks with disabilities or with immigrant populations. Like we're going to we're going to turn a blind eye to all of that because he's going to stand on only a couple of issues that we actually support. Right. And so it's very unfortunate. And you look at so much of the data about how his policies have even impacted, say, poor white communities. And right. it's so alarming to see people still support him. Right. I'm always surprised in particular when Trump supporters point to, prior to COVID anyway, point to the economy as a sign that mm. he's doing a good job. And typically when we talk about the economy doing a good job, we're talking about the stock market. And more often than not, these people don't have investments in the stock market. I think the rise of Trump is like the economic model that man is a rational actor. I think we could throw that out the window in this case. I, I think that there's Mm -hmm. There, there isn't unified action around best interest. It's, yeah. it's more symbolic, right? It's that he's the champion. He's, he's the fist thrown into the face of the condescending liberal intellectual, and he's an incredibly skilled entertainer. And what we're seeing more and more is that fear sells, sex sells, disinformation sells, disrespect yes. sells. I guess it's harder to sell uh, goodness. <laughs> it's harder to sell kindness, right, maybe. Right, yeah, right. right. These things aren't as glamorous, uh, yet right. we know they're much more important. Right, right. Like you said, he's done a, a great job of, of exploiting. He understands how to get the media to work for him and against him. He's really good at having certain forms of propaganda that kind of allow him to use the mantle of, of being president as somewhat of a bully pulpit. What he's attempted to do, he's done it effectively 
for what he's seeing as being important to, to him and to his constituents. And right. so, you know, I think it's it's in the best interest of rationally thinking people <laughs> right. Right. Um, to have a change. Let's just say that. Right. Well, there are a lot of people, I think, who are trying to model the good behavior that we don't see uh, in the executive mm-hmm. office now. And I think you're one of them. And we talked in our preliminary call about how Christians sometimes can be known more for what they're against rather than what they're for. And that was an that was an insight you had that I gather sort of propelled you into some of the work you're now doing with uh, Boston Collaborative. So introduce to our listeners, Jua, uh, what you're up to in while wearing that hat. Yeah, so I appreciate the question. Yes, the Boston Collaborative is an organization that we started uh, two years ago, uh, really as a way of saying, as Christians, we care about what happens in our communities. We care about what happens in education. We care about housing. We care about uh, mass incarceration or or even uh, returning citizens, about what it what it would look like for folks to return from prison and jail. And so, you know, we also care about racial justice. And so there's just a host of issues that Christians often care about, but on a macro level, most people would not know that because what they often see from Christians is the protest against, say, just abortion and gay marriage. And so, you know, what would it look like to begin an organization that, that really helps Christians who are in the pews really think concertedly about what happens in their community so that they can actually go and make a difference? And mm-hmm. so... What we tend to do, what we what we attempt to do is we try to connect Christians who may never be in the same room together around um, particular areas of interest or even profession. We also attempt to inform them about what's happening in the city of Boston. We did a, our first year as an organization. We conducted a huge study of about 60 or so pages, and it was a survey based upon a number of interviews, my other uh, partner in the work that I do, Dano Jakanovich, he and I conducted over a year where we did over 100 interviews with leaders in the in the church world, in the oh, nonprofit wow. space, business space, and the government space, and in a number of other spaces as well, just to find out what's happening in Boston, what's not happening, and just to really try to get a better gauge and handle of what was happening in Boston to really try to figure out all right, is what we're thinking or what we what we were invited into from others uh, into this space, will this be a need for our city? And from that first year, we just learned so much about kind of this idea of informing, kind of connecting, and then helping people to engage some of these, these great organizations. And so in some ways, uh, what we do is when we connect with individuals, we try to help them also Kind of use it either um, collectively or individually connect to organizations who are actually making a difference and so you know you think about this from the business world you think about impact investing so i want right. to you know give some funds to an organization because i believe that they're that they're gonna uh, have some type of gain you know some mm-hmm. type of longer term gain and so for us we say how who are the organizations who are actually accomplishing their metrics because there are a lot of nonprofits who are in the community you know, some who have a great mission, great vision, great people, but just may not be um, actually accomplishing the goals that they've actually set out for. And so what we do is we kind of sit down with some of those organizations to really engage the leaders, because so much, you know, as you already know, 
about many of these organizations is what happens at the top. Like, who are the people leading it? You know, right. are, the, are the people trustworthy? Are they respected in the community? Are they known as people of good character? And so we look at the leaders. Uh, we also look at the mission. Like what, what are they set out to do? You know, how do, how do they actually want to help the city of Boston? And then thirdly, you know, we look at their metrics. And so, you know, for many of those organizations um, who are really helping the city, you know, experience human flourishing, we try to invite people to turn into uh, those organizations to give of their capacity in ways that help those organizations move forward. You mentioned the large-scale study you carried out with interviews. What were yes. some of the most illuminating findings from that? Yeah, I, I would say probably one of the biggest aspects that we learned is for so many people, they wanted to help in in different different ways. So you may say, you may have someone that says, yeah, I want to help with a program for girls, or you may hear someone else say, hey, I want to help with homelessness, or I want to do something else with education. But then the next statement that came out of their mouths was all very similar, but I don't know what to do, right? I don't know where to help. You know, I don't know where to go. I don't know how to do this. And, you know, I have a family or I have, you know, I'm in school or I have a number of things on my plate and I don't have the time to really try to figure out where to go or what to do. And so in that year, that was a pretty alarming um, statement that we heard from a number of people. It's just really saying, you know, I want to help, but not really recognizing the lanes or, or not having the relationships uh, or the knowledge uh, or the institutional knowledge of where to put their actual capacity into right. action. I, get, I guess in a way, it's better that you discovered that and not the opposite. It would have been incredibly disheartening if you discovered that people felt that they knew the ways to make change, but didn't want to. <laughs> yeah, better, right, right. right? It's, so let's walk me through one example then, Jua. Yeah, so, so there's an organization that we've been working with for the last couple of years in Roxbury called the, the Corey Johnson Program. And uh, it's an amazing program. They really help with uh, post-trauma healing. And for most people, when you hear that statement, you think, what the heck is this? Mm. <laughs> and, so, and so the reality is, no matter who you are, you've experienced some type of traumatic experience, whether it be loss of a loved one, unexpected job loss, some other, you know, divorce, you know, or, or some other, you know, experience that really rocked your world. And so they've, what they've done at this program is they've created a space uh, at their church for people in their community to come and just have conversations with other people who have also experienced other forms of trauma or other forms of hurt. And so Throughout the month, they have conversations for men, for women, for children, for um, they have one where, where a, a woman, she does um, exercise. Uh, there's one where they, they do writing as well. Then their banner program is called Can We Talk? And what makes Can We Talk so important is because it's an environment where people will come on a Thursday evening and they have train people to um, to just come and, and, and make meals. For, uh, so they have a, a meal together. This is before COVID. So mm-hmm. they have meals together. Uh, they hire local musicians to play in the background. So they'll oh, have cool. like jazz or they'll have, you know, someone like a, like a professional dancer kind of, you know, like moving to music. 
and then around the table, people are having conversations. And then once the dinner time is completed, folks will kind of sit together. And at that point, they'll set the evening up by just talking about trauma and really what trauma does to the mind and to the body. And then from there, they'll give people an opportunity to talk about their experience and talk about their healing process in whatever way they'd like to do that. So you may say, you may hear someone say, you know, I lost my, my mother 12 years ago and last week was her birthday. Um, mm. And every time I see a, a green Ford Explorer drive down the street, my heart hurts because it reminds me uh, it reminds me of my mother. Mm. Um, or you may have someone that says, yeah, I lost my uh, son to, to gun violence last week. Or, you know, you may have someone else say, you know what, you know, 40 years ago, I was sexually abused. And so you have all of these different stories and you, you have people sharing and just the healing that happens from from someone hearing someone else be vulnerable and open for so many people is just life changing. Mm. And so this program is amazing. And so literally when we first started the Boston Collaborative, you know, I knew about it because of some other work that I did here in the city. And I said, you know, let's let's sit down with them to hear about, you know, what they're thinking. And by the end of that conversation, you know, I said, you know what, we need one of these in every neighborhood in the city of Boston. Yeah. And so from there, we began working with them to really help them think about the replication of their model. And over the last couple of years, we've had a number of, I mean, a number of different folks have reached out to them from all over the country. And so their first replication site is actually in Gary, Indiana. So they had Gary, Indiana, uh, Tennessee, uh, I think one is in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania now, mm. uh, Providence. Uh, Cities that have all and, experienced and tough times. Exactly. And then in other communities around the city of Austin. And what's been so amazing is we invited a group called the American Bible Society to come and just see this because they developed this whole trauma program for churches to kind of help people within congregations. And we just said, you know, you just guys come and see it, see what they're doing. You know, maybe there's an opportunity for you guys to work together. And they brought three of their of their team members, you know, flew to Boston from uh, from Philadelphia. And mind you, they, they do this program around the world. So they developed this curriculum based off of work that they were doing in Africa. And so, mm -hmm. you know, connecting, I think, in Congo and some of these other war torn countries to say, how can we help people to really understand their their trauma? through what they've experienced with so much of the bloodshed that they've seen in their own personal lives. And so when they came to Boston, what was great is one of the guys, he ex they, so they all experienced the can we talk conversation. And one of the guys said, you know, I've been a pastor for over 40 something years. You know, I've been in, I want to say four different states, you know, seven different churches, you know, all across America. And he said, coming here, this has been the most life-changing experience I've ever seen in my life. Oh my and, gosh, he said, wow. and he said, what, what makes this so amazing is you have people who are now recognizing their, their challenges with trauma in the same conversation with people who experienced trauma 30 years ago. And mm -hmm. there are very few spaces where, you, where you're able 
to have both of those types of individuals in the same room experiencing healing. And so the program, you know, and it's, I mean, I, I can't stop talking about it because what they've done is something that I think all churches should be known as is, is a place of, of healing. And so mm. when you come in, like, you don't have to be a Christian. You can be, you know, you could have any, any background, any, any faith experience, but you know, their greater hope is to really help people and then to also provide resources to help them if they need greater care. And so they actually hire a clinician, a, a professional clinician to be there as well. And then they've trained um, folks in the congregation to just, again, this is before COVID, so to give a hug or to, uh, to just be present with people, to listen if they want to have a conversation, and then to help them in whatever form or fashion that they may need moving forward. That sounds like a remarkable organization. And I liked, Jua, that you started by sharing the assumption that everyone has experienced trauma. And and I would say, I, I don't, I feel like it's a fact, not an assumption yes. in, in my estimation. Yes. But to me, that really, I, I want to, um, I want to avoid the temptation to link everything back to federal politics and Donald Trump. It feels like mm-hmm. it has such gravitational pull as a, as a topic in and really, I want to focus on uh, more granular details like what you're getting into now. But but that said, it does take me back to the slogan, make America great or keep America great, uh, whichever one, because it makes me think that it's almost like encapsulated in that slogan. It's the idea that if we just pretend that there's greatness, if we just kind of lean in to this illusion of greatness, then all of our problems will go away. And, and it harkens back to... Um, this sort of verbal software that I think we need to update, which is like uh, among men, we have this notion of the strong silent type, right? And yes. I, I think yes. about that and I just think it, it seems so destructive to me. We, you think about COVID and we heard about all those reports of domestic violence rising when mm-hmm. couples were in quarantine. And that was so heartbreaking among among numerous tragic elements of the pandemic. But I think about that and I do think that, that there are people in the conservative camp who are very reactive to, to statements like everyone has experienced trauma, even though if we just take a closer look and begin with an admission of vulnerability, then it's just true, right? Like it's if, yeah. if one can yeah. just admit their vulnerability and look with depth and honesty, life is rife with trauma. Right. And right. Um, it's very, very tough to... To admit that, I think there's a parallel here too, Jua, with the conversations around racism. I mean, I'm com- as a white man, I agree with the statement that most, if not all, white people in America are racist. Now, when I say this, I want to be clear about the language. I don't think it means that there is active, overt hatred toward other other races, mm-hmm. but I think actually the definition can include things like implicit association biases, even a, a lack of awareness of privilege. I think it would be hard for me to find a white person in my life that isn't uh, afflicted in part by one of those aspects of racism. And and the thing here, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is if someone is told, you know, someone hears, I'm a racist, they get very defensive. No, 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 I'm a good person. Or someone says, hey, everyone has trauma. No one says, no, I don't have trauma. I'm strong. I think about those those reactions. And to me, it feels like by accepting those premises, you don't have to say you're a bad person. You you can still be considered a good person, a whole person, your whole self, and you can love yourself 
while also acknowledging that the work never ends, that you have trauma and that you're a racist, and then go from there. But these are really tough things. What are what are some of your thoughts on that? You make some really good points. I mean, in terms of talking about the trauma, you know, trauma is real. And, you know, I think we do a good job of continuing to, to kind of work hard and, and uh, put our nose to the ground here in America, you know, as opposed to really dealing with some of the some of the tougher challenges that we may have faced in the past. And not to say that those experiences are to keep you from from you know accomplishing your dreams and your goals, right. but it's the reality of, of of what many of us have experienced. And so it could be simply something simple as um, being in school. As you know, remember our childhood. And being in school, and maybe you were, you know, called a name or, or or treated negatively by a friend group or something of that nature, and it just always kind of stuck with you. Um, it could be something simple as, you know, parents divorcing, and you know, not really knowing how to put what happened into words. You know, it could be a number of those types of situations. Being in a car accident, and you know, you you still have some some chronic disability or, or chronic pain. Trauma has so many different forms and so many different manifestations. And so, yeah, I mean, to, to say, you know, everyone has experienced it is, is not being facetious at all. Right, um, exactly. But you know, for the people who, who are able to actually work through that and kind of continue to begin to have language around mm-hmm. the experience and as, as a way of understanding the situation, of, of walking through it, and then eventually helping others, that's where the real victory is. It's, it's in, in, in really being able to, to work through it and, and then being able to come back and say, well, you know, I experienced this, but, you know, it's part of my story, but right. that's not the end of the story, right? It's, and right. so And so I can help someone else through this. I had to pull up the dictionary out of curiosity. I like American mm-hmm. Heritage Dictionary. Uh, mm-hmm. Definition 1B of trauma is severe emotional or mental distress caused by an experience. So then it begs the question, what is severe? Well, Mm -hmm. I think you actually spoke to that. It's something that has stuck with you. You haven't resolved it, right? You remember Mm -hmm. it. It it haunts you in a way. It torments you. It's Mm -hmm. to me, I'm, I think that that certainly qualifies as, as severe. I like to turn to the dictionary when possible so that yeah. uh, right, we, we can have some solid foundation in, in knowing what we're talking about. So I'm curious maybe to, for you to share a little bit more about your own journey with listeners. Um, you mentioned when we talked uh, for a little while last week that you wear multiple hats. I know that you were a pastor, but then um, you transitioned into uh, doing the work of Christ in, in other ways, it sounds like. So tell us a little bit about your your background and um, the hats you wear and some of the professional transitions you've made. Yeah, no, great question. So I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, still, a, still a Cleveland fan, unfortunately. I was going to say, LeBron, um, thumbs up or thumbs down? Well, LeBron brought us a championship, so I'm, I'm, I love, you know, LeBron is, you know, he's, he'll always be my guy. I mean, awesome, he's, he's yeah. Guy. As much as he's done as a philanthropist, <laughs> and you know, he's he's to, to have the the expectations on his shoulders and to be able to exceed them. I mean, he's I mean, he's a he's a remarkable guy. So it's such a um, young guy, no less. Yeah, right, right. So, but yeah, I grew up in Cleveland. Um, my parents divorced it too, and actually lived in uh, Germany uh, for a little while. Um, oh, wow. My mom used to was a teacher in Germany. And uh, did some uh, reporting for the Army newspaper. So 
Uh, we lived there, actually started school in Germany for a few years. So we lived in Germany, moved back to the States when I was in first grade. And as a kid, you know, we kind of moved around a lot. But uh, but eventually, you know, graduated, you know, went to college in Ohio as well. And then um, I want to say years later, um, met my wife. Uh, this year, we've, we've been married 18 years. Um, to, uh, thank you. Yeah, went to seminary, as, as I mentioned, at, at Liberty and went a few years out of college. And so I really wasn't looking for like the school or the institution to kind of shape me as much as I was looking to have kind of a an additional you know credential to kind of show that I've you know that I've, I've studied and mm. have taken my my um, kind of faith and my profession seriously. So I went to went to Liberty and then it was during that time that I was invited to come up to Massachusetts to uh, preach at a church here. And during that experience, had an opportunity to come to Boston and see the city. I had only been here one other time and met with some other leaders here in Boston. And they said, hey, I'm, my wife and I, we are considering you know, starting a church that would be, uh, one, engaged in the needs of the inner city, so not disconnected from the city but then also engaged college students and young professionals. And um, really felt like uh, it was a, a unique kind of calling, you know, to do this, um, but to do it in a, in a, a multi-ethnic space as well. Mm. And as we began to have conversations with leaders, you know, they all said, we don't know of a church like that in Boston. And so, you know, mm -hmm. as my wife and I just continued to pray, we just said, you know what, I think, you know, you know, God may be calling us to come to Boston. This could be the place. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so because it was interesting because we had many of who we consider to be somewhat of the, the gatekeepers in, in, in that community welcomed us in. So uh, once this happened, um, I was accepted into a, a church planting residency program for a year to kind of kind of like a like a like a business incubator. But for for pastors who are starting churches. And so. Through that year, we were able to really work on many of the concepts, the mission, vision, values, raising money, building the website, uh, building the team, kind of all of that. And then uh, we moved to Boston in 2006 and then um, spent a year just meeting people, you know, learning more about the culture, you know, continuing to ask questions. And then in 2007, we, we started our church. And I guess the, the question that, that you initially asked me <laughs> was in terms of kind of my background and you know what's amazing is you know i recognize that that you know during that experience that there's some just some great people in our city some great people who are doing some awesome things and i also recognize that in many ways i i enjoyed engaging so many of, of the different people who i met in the in the city of boston who were, who were outside of my church and mm -hmm. so um, and so whether it be people who worked at the city level, who worked at the state level, who who worked in a number of different industries and recognized that probably year six or seven of, of when I was pastoring the church that, man, I, I could potentially see myself doing something different. I don't know what it is, but I could potentially see myself doing something else that would allow me to maybe explore so many of the relationships that I felt like I that I had established here in the city. And so that kind of led me 
to this point in 2017 where one of the groups that I serve on the directional team of is called Greater Things for Greater Boston. And we hosted a gathering in Vermont for leaders. So for Christian leaders who were pastors, who were in nonprofit spaces and business spaces and government. Actually, Nika uh, Eligardo was a part of this as well, state rep and uh, folks in education. And we just kind of had a, a three-day retreat to talk about why partnerships happen and don't happen amongst the Christian community. And um, it was just a great three-day dialogue. And coming out of those gatherings, there were some other subsequent conversations with a smaller group of those people. And it was from that conversation that they came to me and said, hey, Jua, you know, would you be interested in leading something moving forward that kind of helps this group try to figure out what's next? And so little did I know back then, like those were the, at the time rather, that those were the initial building blocks for the Boston right. Collaborative. And so now, you know, I'm the managing partner for the Boston Collaborative. And, and then later in 20, 2018, uh, the church that I was pastoring, uh, we merged with another church in the city. And the the guy who was leading that church, um, I just said, hey, you go ahead and lead the church. And then I'll kind of focus on the Boston Collaborative. Oh, and, the, and then the next year, uh, that that organization that the church is a part of reached out to me and said, hey, Jua, would you be interested in doing some part-time work helping to be what's called a, a church planting catalyst? So really helping folks who are who are starting churches around greater Boston think more about their mission um, in the city of Boston, about how they can better serve their communities in the city of Boston. And so that all kind of happened, you know, call it all in the same <laughs> crazy year. Um, <laughs> right. You know, it's a lot of things kind of change and, and, and pretty much all at the same time. So in some ways we could think of the structure of the Boston Collaborative as forming, it almost sounds like a, like an impact wing of a church where I imagine some churches, you know, they have their, their masses and people come and there are, there are gatherings, but it sounds like this is an explicitly results-driven operation to help alleviate problems in the community. Is that, is that a way to think about it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a way to think about it. If you look at the research of like Catholic Charities, of the Emmanuel Gospel Center, you know, of a few other nonprofits, and they kind of talk about the number of Christians in, in greater Boston. So if you look at the numbers, it's about 100,000, you know, Christians. And if you just take a small subset of even just like 10,000 of those Christians, what could they do? Because we know that not everyone who goes to a church will want to say, I want to be a part of something more like I want to I want to do something in addition to, you know, just working and family and all of that. For those who are desirous of that, you know, this is a space for them and, and for those who are of goodwill, because there are people who are saying, hey, I'm a lawyer and I like what I do from a professional standpoint. I may be a corporate lawyer, but man, I'd love to use my legal services to help in another industry, you know, to help someone else with my expertise. Or, you know, I'm in finance and I help high net worth people, but man, I just love to help some kids think about money. You mm -hmm. know, or <laughs> you know, or someone else of, of that of that ilk who's thinking, okay, how can I leverage what I've learned to be a greater advocate and resource to those who may be underrepresented? Mm. Yeah, I love that. Going back to what we were saying earlier about people reporting in the surveys that they were eager to help but didn't know how to get started. Mm -hmm. You you are paving roads that people can walk down to 
convey their skills and expertise and knowledge to to better the community new paths new trails new roads and it makes me think Joe, in a way i mean we <laughs> we're in america here uh where there's a lot of pride around working very hard and we have these these expressions uh work hard play hard don't right. knock the hustle and really so much of our of our energy does get tapped for financial betterment of, of usually our immediate circle of ourselves of our families yeah, you know yes. I, I took a class two years ago with cornell west and roberto mm-hmm. unger called american democracy mm-hmm. and one of the guests who visited the course lamented that harvard undergrads uh you know some of the the best and brightest young talent in in the u.s they're almost always accepting jobs, you know, at, at McKinsey or Goldman mm-hmm. or going, going to Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the data is in on those jobs. Everyone knows they're incredibly lucrative, but they're not really contributing to the betterment of society or even really the economy, broadly speaking. They're, they're yeah. essentially just moving money around and, and profiting from it. So I think you're actually building infrastructure to scale goodness. That's the yes. way I'm understanding it. I think that's so cool. I, I may I may take that turn. That's great, man. <laughs> please, please use it. Please use it. I hope it's helpful. I, I want to pivot, Joe, we back to the, the very first question about you being in the limelight these days. And you said people have been reaching out to you talking about the unacceptable realities that we're now facing in a more kind of intense, visceral way, I think, these days. And I wanted you to speak to what an acceptable reality is, right? So much of reality that we're bombarded with, we know is we know is unacceptable. Incident after incident of an unarmed black person being murdered, any number of shenanigans from from Trump. There's so many aspects, so many different faces of our of our misfortune and unfairness and injustice these days. And yeah. and, and also, I think a lot of times we you know we talk about it a lot, but it is it is hard to know you know what to do about it and in order to know what to do about it we might have to define uh, a more acceptable reality and and yes. to sort of iterate and progress towards something better so how do you think about that how do you think about what an accept a more acceptable reality could look like and and how we begin to take steps toward it yeah that's a great question in terms of really thinking about the acceptable realities, it's really try to kind of boil it down to ecosystem, right? So in a city like Boston, I think a, an acceptable reality is I think we may be the only city in the entire country to where you have the state house, you have the city hall, you have major um, technology core, you have medicine, education, and right. finance all within five miles of each other and yeah, so which is, incredible, yeah. which is which is incredible because you have this this collective capacity all relatively speaking within you know a 15 minute drive of each other depending on traffic right, right. Uh, here in the city of boston and i'll and add so, in, in a city in a city the fraction of the size of uh, new york chicago or la exactly and so in those in in those major institutions, you have people who not only impact Boston but they impact the world. So they impact the world with their research. They they impact the world with their techniques, with their infrastructure, with their you know with their resources. And so you know you have that here. Um, and 
I would also say, you know, an acceptable reality is even even outside of that, just the, the intellectual capacity, you know, the financial resources, you have thousands and thousands of nonprofits. And so you have the, the, the people and the capacity here to actually make significant change. I mean, obviously Harvard and MIT and, you know, all the institutions are here as well. And so you have what's here. And so, you know, not, not to go to the unacceptable reality, but, but the question that we consistently ask ourselves is how do we help some of what I just shared about some of those acceptable realities? Mm-hmm. How do we help kind of coalesce some of that together mm-hmm. so that it actually goes into making a difference so that right. it actually helps in some of those different areas? Um, because I would say the acceptable reality, especially here, is that a majority of people, especially in underrepresented communities, like they contribute to their neighborhoods and, you know, black and brown folks in their communities who are often depicted negatively in media, like 90, 95% of those people are just trying to work every day. They want to have good schools for their kids. They, they want to make a fair living wage. You know, they want to live in, in housing that is reliable. Um, they want to own homes. I mean, you know, most of the folks who, who live in those types of environment are people who, who have some of the same ambitions as those who are making significantly more. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's a reality. And there are many people who are in the city who are really thinking about the complexities of, of cities and the complexities of so many of the, the, the issues and the challenges in ways that actually are helpful for the community and helpful for the city, right? Because you can think from a perspective of of systems, or you can think from a perspective of kind of the ecosystem and have a solution, but the solution may not be what's helpful for the entire community, right? right? So when you talk about an acceptable reality, you're talking about a city that's well-resourced and has, you know, an organization like a Year Up. Year Up is an amazing organization, kind of helping young people develop kind of a year of, of instruction, classroom six months, and then six months on a, on a work site to give them a year up in life to kind of help them kind of take the next steps. You know, you've got organizations like City Year who, you know, help college, you know, college students, uh, you know, and college graduates. You know, you have these organizations who are just doing really, really, who are doing really great things. And so, you know, it's, it's really trying to figure out how to take those resources so that they have maximum impact in, in the community. Hmm. I want to linger on that word community for a moment. Mm-hmm. You mentioned before about how the Boston Collaborative has, has found a way to to work successfully with people of goodwill, which is this label you're using for people who aren't overtly Christian or who, who don't identify yes. as Christian, but want to actively engage with the community. You know, it strikes me that in my mind, a community is not a monolith, right? It's not mm-hmm. it's not just this mass uniformity. Um, that moves forward, um, a, a community that is healthy and thriving must be able to accommodate differing opinions, different lifestyles, different faiths, mm-hmm. right? And and move forward uh, not in spite of these differences, but because of them, because they enrich the community. And it's, it's interesting to me too, Jua, I'm just realizing this now that maybe I don't know, 50 years ago in America, 70 years ago, ago in America, it seems like for people explicitly working in a faith tradition to work with 
people from even a different faith tradition mm. might have been uh, an insurmountable goal. I mean, the region mm. I'm from in Pennsylvania, uh, like people who are over the age of 70 uh, around me talk about like, you know, the, the Irish Catholic Church, the Italian Catholic Church, the Polish Catholic Churches in ways that are non-overlapping. It's like, oh, you're not just Catholic, you're Polish Catholic, you're Italian. So there's like this layer of ethnic pride on top of the religious tradition that I think in some ways has dissolved. And now there there, there may be greater potential for working across those those ethnic boundaries. But now, of course, you know, the political chasm seems wider and deeper and, and more unbridgeable than ever. But clearly there are there are still opportunities for for collaboration and diversity. You're, this is clearly what your life's work is. So I guess thinking about some of those thoughts, what does the word community mean to you, Jua? And, and what would you, and, and in your opinion, what are some of its constituent parts and how do we help build healthy communities? Mm, that's a great question. So in terms of community, similar to yourself, I mean, looking at the dic- dic- dictionary definition, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a group of people living in the same place or having a particular characteristic in common, right? And so I, w- I would agree, you know, with that definition. You know, I would also add to that it's just people who care about their individual contribution, but they also care about how their contribution fits to the entire process. Mm. And so it's not solely uh, consumeristic, but it's actually saying, I'm not going to see my life as a consumer, but I'm going to see myself as a contributor. And so, and so when I, when I think about this, you know, I, I guess some words to even augment that or like a phrase I like to tell people or to add flavor to the definition, <laughs> it is this idea of just present. And, you know, when I think about this from a Christian perspective, Jesus did as well. Scripture says that he came to live in and among. And so, you know, this idea of just presence, like, are you, are you there, not just physically, but are you there mentally? You know, are you there um, to where you're listening to people? Are you there to, to not just speak and kind of get your ideologies out? But are you willing to to hear uh, the concerns of others? So so present, you know, I think some of those parts include, you know, trust, you know, is this community one to where, you know, I'm able to be seen as trustworthy? Do I uh, uphold the integrity of why this community is actually here in the first place? And mm-hmm. am I here to to help build up the fabric of the, the gathering of these individuals? So whether it be kind of a, a working community, so whether it be uh, or, or some other type of community, you know, living community, like am I adding value to the people who are around me? And, and am I seen as someone who's being trustworthy to honor and maintain the integrity of that group? And then I would say another part in thinking about it, is this intentional? You know, is this is this is this a an intentional process of really th- thinking about um, the people and uh, the the ideologies and uh, and kind of the the systems that kind of help this community flourish? Uh, it, are, are they intentional? You know, is it intentional to think, for example, if I'm thinking about you know a neighborhood, it's intentional to think, okay, how many how many um, uh, grocery stores are in close proximity to residents? How many, you know, community gardens are available to them? What types of businesses are in the community? Uh, are you know, most of the businesses in the community, you know, unfortunately liquor stores, or are they, you know, uh, or do they have healthy food options? Do they have, you know, owners who actually, you know, not not just kind of make profit off a of community, 
but they do they try to give back and support the community in other types of ways. Even added to that, you know, you, you talked about the idea of, you know, working with people of goodwill. And, you know, I'm just thankful that as an organization, we've been we've been working with people who aren't Christians as well. And so, you know, when I have conversations with people, you know, I tell them you don't have to create a quote unquote Christian version of something in order to to feel like you're making a difference. Right. You can actually, you know, find out what's happening in your community, what's already there, and how can you add, add value to to what's already there. You know, I tell people all the time, don't don't try to reinvent the wheel. If if someone has a mentoring program, don't try to create a Christian mentoring program. Right. You know? Right, you don't have to disrupt the mentoring market, right? If it's already working in a certain place, yeah. Right, and so instead of saying, you know, can we create our own thing? Like the question you should be saying is, how many volunteers can we can we rally together to support what they're already doing? And so so I think the the beauty of working even with Christians and non Christians is that at the end of the day, most people want to make a difference, and they want to know that their life mattered for something bigger than just themselves. And, you know, I would say even, especially for like my, my, our, our non-Christian friends, I hate to say this, but in, in most, in many regards, they care more about efficiency. Mm. You know, they care more about not wasting time or resources and have, you know, in, in many instances have had more of a, a concern about, about how, not just what's done, but how things are done. And, mm-hmm. and, and how effective, um, how, how much more effective could they be done? And, and that's especially for, for folks who are, who are coming at things from a, from a business perspective. You know, last year we were, we were given a couple of grants from the Boston Foundation. And, and, you know, the Boston Foundation isn't a Christian organization. But, you know, one of the reasons they supported us is because they saw how we were helping, you know, nonprofit organizations really think more concertedly about the impact they were making in Boston. And, you know, they told us, they said, hey, you know, some of these organizations, they come back to us year in and year out asking for money. But we asked them the question of, have you addressed what we asked you to, to address last year, you know, when you sent us your proposal? And, you know, many cases they say no, because we've had to deal with five other issues. And they said, you know, if, if organizations <laughs> like, like yours can help to alleviate some of that, that we want to support you. And so and so that's been encouraging. You know, we've actually sat down with the ACLU, uh, with their their director of the, the racial justice initiative. And and when everything kind of happened, you know, around, you know, with, when George Floyd and, you know, Ahmaud Arbery and all these cases, Breonna Taylor, all these cases started happening. You know, we reached out and just said, how, you know, if, if we can get Christians together to help, what are some things that we can be right. doing? And um, one of the one of the things he came back to us and said is that like the mass uh, bail fund, it would be a great organization because they're helping to, to to get people out of jail who don't need to be there. And, you know, and then he told us an alarming statistic is he said like 50 percent of people who have bail of like five hundred dollars or less, 50 percent of those people stay in jail because they can't pay it. And wow. and this is, you know, this is something you know, that's like loitering, you know, or, yeah, you know, right. like, 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 like simple, like, like truly like, innocuous. Crimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. And so that was, that was one of his offerings and people really like during COVID and, you know, kind of during everything that's been happening, you know, nationally, they've been given like a boatload of resources and have 
kind of increase their ability to to help people who are in in jail for lower level offenses. And so, you know, you asked me about community, but I'm just thinking about this in light of just so many of the conversations that we've had with people, right. you know, especially for non-Christians. And I mean, it's always encouraging to me to when, you know, when we're, you know, doing work in the community and, and someone who's not a Christian will come up and say, hey, man, are you hiring? <laughs> and then and, and right. not a Christian <laughs> because, you know, they believe in and really helping and really seeing their lives as being as, as helping to, you know, alleviate some of the challenges. And as you mentioned, some of the problems that they see in their own communities. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope to an extent we're we're modeling an interfaith dialogue now or a, or a cross belief dialogue. I, I think I mentioned to you that I was raised Catholic, but I yes. don't identify as Christian currently. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think what I think the view that I've come around to is that religions writ large, the, the, the major religions, I think, have articulated a moral foundation, a moral way of living and Although they may not have a monopoly on being moral in the world, they're very useful in that they've been trying to articulate this vision for you know hundreds and hundreds of years. And and ultimately, this is an Ezra Klein line. Uh, he hosts a good podcast for for listeners who are interested. He said recently, "We're either striving toward morals or we're not." Mm-hmm. And I love that. I I do think it's binary, and it's in some ways larger than religion because because you you want to pitch a wide tent and following Christ's work and his image I know is very important to you but but I think having the recognition that we can pitch a wider tent in a lot of ways can be can be really um right. useful and what I think is unfortunate is that I think because the church and and the Christian tradition in particular had its hand on the lever of power for centuries and I think I think that there's a sort of like literalist read to religion these days, which is to like look at the historical facts and people will point out, you know, everything from uh, the Crusades to, to pedophilia and oh my God, how can we listen to these hypocrites, you know? And my feeling is that the abuse of children or violence, yeah. you know, those things are, I'm sure it's not controversial for me to even say to you, of course, those things are bad and wrong and, and awful. But I just feel like some some things, you know, demand radical reform and, and need intense scrutiny. But on the other hand, I, I guess I'm just a person who never wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are things that, that should be preserved about rich traditions and other things that should be changed. And I don't think one you know necessarily blots out the other. The Christian church has had its problems historically. Yes. Uh, we know yes. about them. Yes. They're well documented. Yes. And the Christian tradition based on Christ, ultimately, mm-hmm. has, has articulated uh, a model of moral living that is, that is really powerful and really enduring. It's not yeah, to say, exactly. again, it's not to say, again, that the bad is excused. Um, the bad is bad. And we just, we, just need to hold, we just need to hold it all up and, uh, you know, not ignore anything. Um, so I, I guess I just wanted to get your, your – the question is ultimately really just seeing your, your reaction to that sort of – uh, line of yeah. thinking. No, I mean it's it's a great man. I mean you've you've just asked some some awesome questions today, man. I just <laughs> thanks. Um, very, very I appreciate thought- your your deep thoughtful answers. No, man. I mean I'm serious. I mean I've been on other other podcasts. I mean the, the questions you're asking. I mean they're 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 forcing me to go to a to a deep well. When you think about you know quote unquote institutions of faith, most people have this. Ex- 
expectation of moral goodness. And so that there's this sense of piety to where they will uphold to the uh, traditions and teachings and values that they have as kind of the core elements of who they are as an organization. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whether it be Christians, Muslim, whatever, you know, you, you would hope that people would, would adhere to those. Um, you know, what's, what was so awesome, you know, for me, you know, because I'm, I'm still a, a pastor at the church. I'm an, I serve as an elder. And in the Protestant tradition, you know, it's somewhat interchangeable, like the term, you know, biblically. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I still serve, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a what's called a lay elder. But one of the, the, the most enjoyable aspects of, of when I was pastoring was being able to have conversations with folks who would consider themselves to be ex-Catholics. Um, mm-hmm. And what was so awesome about it is we had a number of folks in our church who formerly identified as Catholic. And in our church, they were able to to engage scriptures on a deeper level from the standpoint of saying, all right, if Jesus is, is telling me to to love my neighbor, what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. Um, if, you know, the Apostle Paul, you know, has, has talked about um, goodness, how do we extrapolate that? You know, when Paul was talking to the church of Ephesus, and this was a church that had a lot of division and strife, like, what does that what does that mean for the church today? And, you know, for a lot of people, they hadn't really extrapolated the thoughts of of really taking kind of the teachings that happened 2000 years ago to today and to really think about it in the context of. So how do we live this out in a city like Boston? And I remember, you know, when, when the whole, um, you know, situation with Mike Brown happened and, you know, I said, all right, so, you know, what would you do if, if Mike Brown's family I came to our church? I preached this. And then we, we, we did it in all of our small groups as a, as a congregation. There were some questions we all processed. You know, what would you do if Mike Brown's family came? And, and you know, folks were saying, hey, you know, I'd give him a hug and, you know, try to help him and this and that. And then I said, what are of, of the, the officer who shot him, what if he came to church? His family mm-hmm. came to church. I didn't say him. I said, what if his family came to our church? Right. And for certain people, you know, they just said, honestly, man, I, I, it would be hard. Like, right. it would be hard to embrace them. It would be hard yeah. to love them. It would be, be hard to do that. And so, and so I was really thankful to create a space for people to have those types of conversations. And so when I think about, you know, what you just shared, I think so often people are looking for spaces where they can have those types of dialogues and then understand how to see the lens of faith through some of the things that happen in and out of just daily life. Right. Um, and unfortunately, in many in many like spaces, in many you know churches, I'm gonna just you know keep it in, in the you know Christian you know Protestant sure. mm-hmm. tradition, like they don't see that. And, and you know what they may often see is something that that does not connect well to the lived experience of people on a daily basis. And they, they often see a church that's not willing to, to, to have the conversations, even if they disagree with them, but, but to have the conversation and to at least let them know that, that in, our, in, in our humanity, we actually see this as being a challenge or problematic or being a question that people may have and we want to we want to embrace it. We want to we want to talk about it, you know, as a way of helping our, ourselves to be more informed about what's happening in societally. That's right. And I think ultimately communication is 
the only tool we have. And I think you're putting it to very good use uh, by doing that. So thank you for sharing that. And Joe, I'm mindful of your time. It, it's flying by. I feel like we could go on and on. It's been, it's really been a pleasure. <laughs> and I, I appreciate you sharing all your thoughts. If I can, I would like to just ask you one more question. Sure. Amidst some of the difficulties we're talking about at the individual level, at the community level, at the federal government level, I'm wondering what gives you hope these days? Mm. Yes. What gives me hope is seeing our Gen Z, you know, seeing you know other millennials who are really passionate about making our society more equitable for everyone. And, you know, you talk about graduate from Harvard entering into systems where they are like a cog in the wheel, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to being a, a, a lever of change. And so when I see people who are willing to say, you know what, like, I don't have all the answers, you know, I don't claim to, but I'm willing to enter into a conversation that can lead towards something more sustainable. If I had a woman in our church, she worked in, um, and she was a lawyer for, for immigrants and just, just had a huge passion to really help, you know, a, a population that often has obviously so many different challenges, but when it comes to law has so much fear. And so, you know, she said, hey, I want to work to help them. You know, she speaks Spanish and she just said, I just want to do this because, you know, I can make a lot of money elsewhere but I recognize that this is a population that's grossly underserved, especially within kind of the, the, the legal world. And so what does it look like for her and, and others like her to really help people to understand some of the advantages they have and some of the some of the resources they have? And so I get excited when I see people who are willing to serve others and to help others. And just to begin to to say that, you know what, my, my parents might have said something or, or done something different than what I believe. And I want to live my life trying to to help people, you know, understand that that racism is wrong. Like, I want to mm-hmm. understand, help people understand that it's not cool to make jokes about, you know, about, you know, folks of color or about gays or about other like that's, that's not cool or it's not cool to you know, begin to um, to see systems and like you like you said earlier, to see privilege as being accessible to only people who have like my my skin tone or or my experience. That there needs to be greater equity amongst everyone. And so, you know, especially in the in the in the Christian world, like people say, you know, like they I don't know if you know this, but like there are a lot of like Christians who do not like the term Black Lives Matter. And, and mm. they've gone they've gone out and just said, hey, you know, I'm, you know, I do believe Black Lives Matter, but I did I decry the organization and kind of, you know, what they stand for. And and people have just written and, and talked about it to a to a great degree because there are people who have a hang up with the term. And so, mm. you know, when which, I which which on a literal level, it goes back to my common sense point. I mean Black Lives Matter? Like, right, right, like exactly. to quibble with that three-word sentence is... Man, yeah. man listen, it, it, it's crazy because there are certain certain people who have, um, who, who call themselves Christians who are not willing to say that term. Um, wow, um, wow. And regardless of if it's, if it's attached to an organization, right, 
just to be able to say that term. Exactly, right. And, you know, so Black Lives Matter or even just like this black equality. I mean, just to right. keep it, you know, black equality, like, like you know, just, just the same fairness that, that anyone else would have, but to have it, you know, for, for black people as well. So there's, there's, yeah, there, there's just a number of, of young people who I've just seen who have just been, just been killing it, you know, and, and writing and thinking, you know, right, you know right. folks like yourself who are just really presenting opportunities for conversation and dialogue, but then also saying, how can we take these intentional steps in order to make a difference? And right. that's been, that's been really, that, that's, that's given me hope. Yeah. And I would just add as a postscript to that great answer too, that I think what sometimes gets lost in understanding uh, activism is that even when you hear language that seems eminently more controversial than Black Lives Matter, for example, mm -hmm. uh, dismantle the police. I think when people say that, it is shorthand for the need for reform. And I think sometimes we, we need to understand that the status quo in a, in a society, it's very hard to break. It's very hard to change. The status quo has so much inertia. There's resistance to change in motion. And it takes the radical messaging uh, to tilt the needle. I think probably yes. the people yeah. who are on the streets with those signs, I bet they know. I bet if we, I bet if we got them in a one-on-one -on -one long-form conversation, I said like, hey, you know, you're not really going to totally dismantle the police, right? They would say, yeah, right. yeah, no, I know, right. of course, but, but this is this is an effort toward reform. It's directional. It's oriented toward a change that's necessary. So I would just leave that for the for the consideration of listeners that. Um, there is, uh, it's it's very, very hard to make change and it takes radical slogans sometimes to move the needle. Um, I, I don't think Black Lives Matter is a radical slogan at all. I understand there are differences between the sentence uh, and what some of the founders of the organization have said, but, but even still, I, I think that we need to look at the arrow of these of these messages. And clearly to me, they're, they're pointing in the direction that we need to go. Yeah, um, yeah. Those would be my two cents on that. I also, I, I want to say, Jua, too, I think so much of what you talked about earlier about um, with people sharing their trauma and how it comes in many different forms, it reminds me of a quote from Carl Jung, uh, we, are, we are not what has happened to us, we are what we choose to become. And mm -hmm. I think it's always important to have a reminder of the agency we have, even when we feel overwhelmed with trauma. And I think, you know, so many people who have been uh, cooped up because of the quarantine and then just feeling despondent about the state of our democracy, how weak or frail it may be. We have agency to begin by having conversations like this one. We can vote, obviously, is, is a very um, sort of blatant form of agency we have, but but there's so much more. There's, there's the organization you founded, and, uh, you know, I, I hope that people can feel empowered. So you, you've you've inspired me by way of this conversation to sort of share that message. No, no man, uh, I, when you talk about kind of that that level of activism, I mean, and you know, it was Emmett Till's murder that was a precursor, you know, to the the Montgomery bus boycott, right? Mm, that helped to end segregation. Exactly. Nineteen sixty-five, you know, Bloody Sunday, you know, was a precursor to the Selma march that led to the Voting Rights Act. You know, like you said, the tension of well, is this going to make a difference, right? And so when you talk about, um, you know, the protest now, it's like, what, what is it going to do? Like, how is it going to help? And I will say this, you know, even even in my own spirit influence, 
like I've had many white people like reach out and say, I didn't know the problem was as big as it is with racism in America until seeing George Floyd. Until this all happened, I didn't know it was as as significant as it is. And so like for, like forgive me for for my eyes being closed. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I want to help by doing on X, Y, and Z. So whether the, the changes actually come from like Louisville now saying they um, ended no knock warrants mm. to, you know, to other like local, you know, even on a localized level, like different things happening, um, that there that there are things happening, whether they're seen on a national level or not, especially in terms of how people are now responding to it. And um and only time will tell what how you know what what the longer term effects of that will actually be. Right. Hmm. Well, yeah. listen, Jua, I would I feel like I can I can keep asking you questions, but as grateful as I am and as great as this has been, I I think I I think you're better off going out and doing the work you've been doing, which is really important. So I don't want to I don't want to keep you a minute longer from getting out there and doing all the wonderful work you've been doing. Um, I want to thank you so much for for joining me today. It's been a really interesting conversation. Oh man, it's been great. Thank you. If, if people want to get in contact with me, you know, they can reach me, you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram. Uh, I'm easy to find, Jewel Robinson. If they have questions or want to have further dialogue, be, be more than willing to, uh, to connect with them. You heard Jewel, folks. Uh, please reach out to him. Uh, he's a tremendous resource of, of wisdom. Uh, have a great day, Jewel. I'll talk to you soon. Uh, all right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Take care. Bye.